Well, we're in our fifth and final week of this special summer elder series that we've entitled Convictions of a Faithful Church. And uh, we have had the privilege of hearing from Brian Irby, who uh, spoke to us on the sufficiency of Scripture and really what its profit and its purpose is in the life of his people. Uh, We heard from Mike Payne, who brought us a powerful message on our citizenship, really our dual citizenship and the significance of that. And then Joel Teague brought us an incredible message on the stability of counselors and the critical importance in the life of the church of giving and receiving godly, wise counsel from God's word. And then last week, Lee Parker spoke to us about the importance, the significance, and the strength of true fellowship, of genuine fellowship in the body of Christ, and how it's such an important feature, an important conviction for God's people to have as we gather as his people, even locally here at Faith Community Church. And, you know, it's been my experience as I've kind of participated along with you in all of this, I've just been welled up with the sense of gratitude for these men, um, their faithfulness to God's word, um, just their diligence. I've, I have the privilege of knowing them and, and have gotten to know them much more personally over the last number of years. But I can tell you, as I'm sure many of you can testify, um, the faithful men in our church, these elders who have already taught us, and even the others who haven't been a part of this series, they're such a rich blessing to our congregation. They are a rich blessing to my family and have been for 15 years and to me personally. And so it's been a great privilege even for me to just revel in the joy of life in the body of Christ as I've got to hear from these men who I love so dearly. And as I said, we're in our fifth and final message in this series. And I know, I'm quite certain, um, you're probably like me, we are very much looking forward to having Pastor Shane uh, back in the pulpit next week, Lord willing, and uh, jumping back into this great study of the Gospel of Matthew. But nevertheless, we have some work to do this morning, and as you can tell from probably the worship and even the reading from Ephesians, we're going to be focusing in today on biblical unity, this important reality and principle of biblical unity. Um, it's a big subject. I, I spent quite a bit of time. I, I read through uh, pretty much all of the New Testament. I can't say that I read every jot and tittle, as they say, over the course of this past week. But I, I read pretty thoroughly through the New Testament, and particularly Acts through even the first part of Revelation, trying to zero in on passages that jump out and speak to this important matter of unity in the body of Christ. And I came away, you might want to write this down, I came away with a really powerful insight. Are you ready? Biblical unity in the body of Christ is kind of a big deal. Make sure you put kind of, because that's kind of a little bit of sarcasm, and it kind of makes the point more powerful. I was overwhelmed. And just a reading through the New Testament and seeing all the significant portions of Scripture that deal with this important matter of unity in the body of Christ. In fact, Brian just read a significant section in Ephesians that deals with this important matter. And, you know, as we attempt attempt to tackle what is an enormous subject in the New Testament, but yet an enormously important subject, as I've already said, I think it's important for us to 
draw a couple of distinctions about biblical unity in the life of the church. And when I say distinctions, I don't mean to draw too sharp a line between what you might call two categories or maybe two vantage points that we see in Scripture as it views this issue of biblical unity. In fact, um, the two categories or vantage points of biblical unity that I want to kind of break our study into today, uh, they're certainly not uh, separated in, in terms of being distinct in that way. In fact, they're interrelated and inseparable. But nevertheless, drawing the distinction, I think, is important to us for us to have clarity. I think in the absence of understanding some of these distinctions, what we find happening in individual Christians and in churches and otherwise is what you might call an impractical conflation of these two principles, these two categories of unity that we're going to look at today. Um, And this oftentimes leads to, at minimum, uh, erroneous thinking, and at worst, it leads to false teaching. If if we don't have clarity about this matter of biblical unity and how Scripture addresses it in sort of two major ways. The first sort of major category, if you will, of biblical unity that I think is important for us to understand, and we'll spend a little bit of time here, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in the second major category as we get to it, but we need to understand that church unity, the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ, is a unity that is established and guaranteed. It is not hypothetical. It is not contingent upon the actions and reactions of individual believers or collections of churches or any individual church. But in a transcendent, eternal way, unity of the church is established and guaranteed. The Westminster Confession says this, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's the church. It's guaranteed and it's established. And we see this prominently when we go to John chapter 17 and we read this powerful section of scripture where Jesus is praying shortly before his crucifixion in what is often referred to as his high priestly prayer. And in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus says this, I I do not ask for these only. He's already prayed for the disciples that were with him, but now he extends or broadens his prayer to include... What he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is the prayer of the incarnate Son of God to his heavenly Father. And so you can be sure it is a prayer that was prayed in accordance with the will of God and was answered by God. This high priestly prayer really probably is one of the areas where some of the confusion 
around how we are as believers to understand the implications or even the application of principles of biblical unity in the life of the church. This is kind of where some of the confusion or erroneous thinking kind of is drawn from. Because as we look around, I don't know about you, but is it just me that we're living in a day and time where unity is not the first descriptive term that you might think of when you think of life in our society or even maybe your familiarity with what's going on in many, many churches uh, around the country and around the world? Unity is not the thing that first pops into our minds. In fact, we're living in a day and time where we're compelled almost daily to zero in on everything that makes us different or divides us. And that kind of emphasis is playing itself out in churches all over the country and all around the world. Then you have the issue of denominations. I don't know what the right statistic is. I I read one statistic that said there's over 40,000 denominations around the world. I read another one that said there's over 30,000 denominations around the world. One Catholic apologist said that if you just sort of combine or consolidate all of the sort of big name kind of denominations and you put them all kind of under the big titles, then maybe there's 180. I don't know. But you look at all of that and you say, well, there's division and turmoil and strife that's manifesting itself in my cousin's church or my son-in-law's church or people that I know, my neighbor's church. We, we hear of these divisions. We read about them on the news. Go to YouTube and you can find all kinds of videos that will exploit divisions in the life of the body of Christ. And then we think about this on an organizational or maybe an institutional level, and we see all of these divided denominations. And then we refer back to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and it does produce for us, if we're thinking about it in a certain way, it produces for us maybe a little bit of tension. What is going wrong? Phil Johnson, I think, makes an important distinction here in an article that he wrote some years ago. He said this, the unity Christ prayed for in the church is not to begin with an organizational unity. When Jesus prayed that we might all be one, he was describing a spiritual unity. In John chapter 17, 11, he prayed that they may be one even as we are. Verse 21 continues, that they may all be one even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us. That describes, he says, a very specific kind of spiritual unity that proceeds from our union with Christ. Christ himself likens it to the unity between father and son. It is certainly not something as mundane and superficial as the homogenization of all churches under one earthly hierarchy of bishops in Rome or Constantinople. Furthermore, he says, it would be a serious mistake and a serious blow to real unity To imagine that the answer to our denominational division is the abandonment of denominations altogether and the union of all who profess Christ into one massive worldwide organization where we affirm only what we all agree on. No real agreement whatsoever would be achieved through such means, and thus we would have no more true unity than we already enjoy. Meanwhile, the cause of truth would suffer a severe blow, and that would ultimately prove fatal to all genuine unity. So it's important that we understand that when we look at this passage in John chapter 17 and we think about unity or the oneness of the body of Christ under Christ as the head, we're talking about first and foremost a spiritual unity and certainly not an organizational or institutional kind of unity that many people would think that we should aspire to. 
Certainly, the Roman Catholic Church views the Protestant Reformation as a great schism, a great breaking off from the one true church. And there are many, many articles that have been written, many, many sermons that have been delivered about how the Catholic Church can restore all of the schismatic denominations and churches back into the one true church. And they base much of their argumentation on this particular passage in John chapter 17. What we need to understand is that this unity, in spite of how we might analyze or think about denominations or even divisions that occur within churches, very real divisions and factions that can come about in the life of churches and that have come about throughout history, we need to understand that that has no bearing whatsoever on the truth and veracity and the answered prayer of Jesus that his church, his people will be one with him and with the Father. This is a certainty. This certainty was prayed for by Jesus, but it was also provided for in salvation. Many passages we could go to to just sort of survey this principle, but salvation provides for this unity, this oneness that Jesus prayed for. One reference we could go to would be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a certainty. This is not speculative unity. The established and guaranteed unity of the body of Christ is provided for in salvation itself. The reality is is that every believer in Jesus Christ, by a sovereign work of grace, according to the wise counsel and will of a sovereign God, have been brought into unity in Christ as the head. And there is no dividing wall. There is no true division, spiritually speaking. Galatians 3, familiar passage I'm sure to many, kind of makes this much more explicit in the terminology that it employs, takes it basically to the nth degree to be able to understand this oneness. In Galatians 3, 27 to 28, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Pick your category. Pick your external descriptor. None of those change the spiritual reality that is established in salvation through Christ Jesus, that the church is one under its head. This is an eternal reality. Unity is provided for in salvation. But thirdly, unity is perfected in Christ's kingdom. So as we look to the future, you go to Revelation, for example, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 14, and you see this glimpse into this future day, this future reign of Christ. And it says this, And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain by your blood, and you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is guaranteed. This is as certain as this prophecy is certain. We need to understand that the unity or the oneness, the spiritual oneness of the body of Christ is established by God through Christ Jesus, and it's guaranteed. Now, as we look at this scene in Revelation, and there are other similar scenes that we get to glimpse into and we see the saints of God gathered around the throne in perfect harmony, worshiping the Lamb, unhindered by sin, by pain, by sorrow, and certainly unhindered by difference or discord or strife. Imagine that. Imagine that. Darby's good, but he's not that good. That's going to be an incredible incredible experience for God's people who are one under their head, Christ, to gather around the throne. And this is a future event, certainly, but it forms the basis of our hope, and and it also fuels our desire for unity here and now, for unity in the church here and now. I mean, this, this reality of the established and guaranteed oneness or unity of the body of Christ, under Christ, its head, it begs the question, what does this actually look like in real time? Or what do we do with all of the discord and disharmony that we see or maybe we've experienced? How do we reconcile that? How do we bring all this together in our understanding? Well, certainly we have other principles, other doctrines in Scripture that echo this kind of reality. We know that in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. We, we are righteous. We stand alone in Christ's righteousness, that his perfect righteousness has been imputed to our account. And so we stand before God perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. And yet, even in this discussion about unity, if I ask for a show of hands of how many of you experienced some discord even before you left the house this morning on your way to church, I'm guessing that you might not be able to say, I have arrived 
at the place that is true of me before the throne of God right now in Christ Jesus. There's a point at which we need to recognize that what is established in the heavens, what is guaranteed and assured and provided for in our salvation, we are called now to practically work out. So I want to look for a moment at the church and its unity as it's practiced and preserved. And this is where I want to focus the rest of our time this morning because this is kind of where the proverbial rubber meets the road for us. It really doesn't do us much good to wring our hands over the recognition that in real time we are not experiencing in this life the kind of oneness that we envision when we read John chapter 17. But what I think is helpful for us is to really think thoroughly and biblically about how we flesh out, how we practice and pursue, cultivate and preserve the unity of the fellowship in the body of Christ. What does unity in the church look like? And let's start with what does the unity of the church look like before we even leave the house? What does unity in the body of Christ look like when you're all by yourself? As you look at the New Testament and you survey it and you, as I said, zero in on passages that pertain to unity in the body of Christ, what you see over and over again, or what, might you, what you might call sort of a catalog of Christ-like virtues, lists of virtues, of attitudes that every believer must cultivate in their own hearts individually in increasing measure in order for oneness and unity and harmony to prevail in the church. There are individual virtues that foster unity. And these are listed significantly throughout the New Testament. We don't have time to go through all of them, but just to give you a running sort of tally, if you're taking any notes, you can look at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 21. You can look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Philippians chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, 11. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. There are these lists, these staccato references to what you might call virtues, attitudes, dispositions of heart and mind that the believer is to put on, to take up, to cultivate in increasing measure. And in so doing, Before you even leave your house, you are already in the process of contributing to and cultivating and fostering unity in the body of Christ. Like I said, there's many passages that we could turn to, but for the sake of sort of consolidating this this principle into one passage, I would invite you to look with me at Colossians chapter 3, and we'll just briefly work our way through verses 11 to 17. Again, not spending too much time here, but just thinking about these virtues that foster unity in the body of Christ, these individual virtues. Colossians 3, verses 11 to 17. Here, is, uh, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you might you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in this section, you have these virtues sort of rattled off for us. And you notice that the context here, it's speaking about harmony and unity in the body of Christ. So in verse 12, you have a reference to compassion or a compassionate heart. You have a reference to kindness, to humility, to meekness, and to patience. To verse 13, you see the the virtue of forgiveness, of being forgiving, forgiving another as you've been forgiven. Verse 14, you have this consummate virtue of love that, that binds everything together in perfect harmony. But then you go on in verse 15 and you see peacefulness and thankfulness. By the way, you see thankfulness repeated again in 16 and 17, so that's certainly an important virtue for us to be focused on. But then you even can infer from verse 16 that that there's this virtue of being teachable, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and being worshipful. The the outbirth of this is is that you're, you're characterized by worshipfulness. You can't help but sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Now, just think for a moment what life in the body of Christ would be like if believers were consistently cultivating compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peacefulness, thankfulness, teachableness, and worshipfulness. This is before you come into contact with anyone. This is before you have to figure out how to reconcile some point of conflict or contention that does arise. If you and I are cultivating these kinds of virtues individually, then unity can emerge. Or maybe a better way to say it is that unity within a local church always begins within the individual hearts of believers. It always begins there. If you and I are diligent and faithful in cultivating these virtues then we'll certainly find ourselves rejoicing in the unity that God is producing in our midst. Now, this brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where I want to settle in for the rest of our time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. As we continue to consider the practice and preservation of unity in the church, Let's turn our attention to what you might call some shared disciplines that define and protect unity. Some shared disciplines. Common disciplines. We have individual virtues that we cultivate. And then we have shared disciplines amongst us that help to define, help us to understand what unity is, what it looks like, what shape it takes. And then also to protect and preserve it. This short verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's short and brief, but man, is it packed. 
It is a comprehensive statement by the Apostle Paul. And if you're familiar with Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, what you know is that he is having to deal with no shortage of problems and dissension and discord and disharmony and disunity in the life of this particular church. In fact, after nine brief verses of his normal sort of salutation and introductory material and words of thanksgiving, he launches in verse 10 into this appeal that really centers on this issue of divisions or factions in the life of the church. And he carries this discussion forward through the next better part of four chapters. This is a major, major point of difficulty in the life of the Corinthians and certainly a major source of heartbreak for the Apostle Paul. But let's just look at this short, brief verse for a moment and we'll unpack it a little bit more to kind of think through what are these shared disciplines that we hold together that define and protect unity in the body of Christ. He says this in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And there there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I'm not sure if you picked up on the comprehensive nature of this verse. But the appeal that the Apostle Paul is making couldn't be more clear and in some ways more daunting. His appeal is that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Who wants to tap out? Think of such a thing. Notice, though, first of all, that the Apostle Paul is leveling here or issuing an appeal to the Corinthians. This is not taking the form of a stark, harsh rebuke, but rather it is literally an appeal to them. In fact, he uses the term parakaleo, which is a form of the term for the spirit that John uses in his gospel to refer to the spirit of God. And this term has the the reference of coming alongside. His appeal is to come alongside these believers who are wrestling with and struggling through factions and discord, and he's appealing to them. And certainly this is a reference to sort of the nature of the Apostle Paul's heart. His heart certainly is broken over what he has heard from Chloe's people, it will say a little bit later on, what he has heard about these factions and this discord. It's breaking his heart. He is the one who birthed this church. He had an endeared affection for these believers. And so certainly he's appealing to them out of a heart for them. But this appeal also kind of gives us some insight to recognize that the nature of true unity is something that can't be forced. You can't legislate unity. You can't have rules and regulations that you set up that compel people to function in a spirit of unity. It can't be compelled or forced. Unity in the body of Christ is essentially an inside-out enterprise, is the point. Thus, the virtues that we must take on. And so the Apostle Paul is coming alongside what he calls brothers, an affectionate term, a generic term for brothers and sisters. 
These are the objects of this appeal. But note also, he comes with a strong tone of authority. He's appealing to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the agency or means of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to give you a little bit of context, Paul has been referring to Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ multiple times leading up to this point. He is establishing in the hearts and minds of these Corinthians that he is coming to them in the authority of Christ Jesus. What he's instructing them is from Christ Jesus, and what they are called to is only possible as they walk in Christ Jesus. So when we look at the content of this appeal, he's asking them to all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. On one hand, it's daunting, a little bit overwhelming, but on the other hand, it's really a beautiful picture of unity in the body of Christ. British Puritan pastor and author John Flavel said this, this threefold union and judgment, affection, and language includes all that belongs to Christian concord. It makes the saints, men of one heart and soul, the loveliest sight this world affords. A church that the world looks on and sees agrees that there are no divisions among them, that they're of the same mind and the same judgment would be a wonder for any watching unbeliever to see. But it's also a high and holy standard for unity, is it not? A little bit intimidating. All of you agree, no divisions among you, same mind, same judgment. As I said, in a gathering this size, I think I can statistically be assured that if we understand this in a very straightforward, kind of simple surface way, we need to tap out. We've already sort of failed. Maybe even today. Maybe you didn't agree with someone today. Now what? Maybe there is some persisting or remaining discord or tension between a fellow brother or sister, even in this church right now. Maybe you're just not seeing eye to eye. You're not, you're not thinking about how to make a decision in the same way with someone. So what do we do? This is certainly a high and holy standard. In fact, you could even say it's akin to the standard that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount that we studied a number of months ago. In Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When I hear all of you agree, no divisions among you, same mind, same judgment, I don't really see wiggle room there. And really, this is the point. The church, believers in the church, cannot and will not ever function in unity apart from the work of Christ in them. It is never a contrived or organizational or gung-ho sort of worldly mission-minded kind of unity that he's speaking of here. 
In fact, when you look around at many churches today, many churches and many church leaders are trying to achieve unity through something very similar that the Apostle Paul was dealing with here in Corinth. And that is the infiltration, the, the bringing in of worldly wisdom into the life of the church and the mission and ministry of the gospel. And they're calling people to unify around something less than or other than the clear, faithful proclamation of God's word and the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ. And they're successful in achieving some measure of some level of surface unity that might be sustained for some period of time. But what you often notice is that there's a constant renewing or shifting or changing of the new thing that has to be rolled out and presented so that people can kind of get on board with the next new thing so that they can stay unified. This is no superficial unity. And this is certainly no unity that is an outside-in, let's join the same club and be on board together kind of unity. So what are some essential elements of this local church unity that we see here? Uh, I actually taught through this in my adult Bible study class, and I remember this is a number of weeks ago, but I chose this idea or this principle of essential elements of local church unity, and I proceeded to, in all of my wisdom and my craftiness of being able to do a Google search and look for information, I began to explain what an essential element was, and right in the middle of that explanation, I kind of looked to my left, and I noticed that biochemist Dr. Shreyas Athavle was sitting right over here, and I'm about to go into a biochemistry lecture on essential elements. I haven't seen Shreyas this morning, but I'm probably going to provoke him again this morning when I use this term. But just so we understand what we're talking about when we look at what are some essential elements of local church unity that we can draw from this passage, an essential element is any chemical element required by an organism for healthy growth. So if you think of the church as an organism, a living organism, what is essential for its healthy growth? And you have two kinds of essential elements. You have micronutrients and you have, or or trace elements, these are chemical elements or substances that have to be present in minute amounts. Too much can be toxic. But then you have macronutrients that must be present in large amounts for health and growth. We're talking about macronutrients when we talk about these essential elements of unity in the body of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul is drawing out here. He says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. We might say that this is the essential element of a common confession. A common confession. This this term here, that you all agree, is literally that you all keep speaking the same thing. So that there be no schisms among you. That you all sing from the same doctrinal song sheet, if you will. This schismata, this divisions, is a reference to something like a torn garment that's no longer useful for the purpose for which it was made. And so the idea here is that when there are divisions in the body of Christ, when we're not 
operating with a common confession, a common understanding. We're speaking the same things. We're conveying the same beliefs, the same understanding of Scripture, the same understanding of what we're called to from God's Word. When we're not saying the same things in a common confession, it results in divisions. And the implication here is that we no longer will function the way we were intended to function. Like a a, a torn or rent net that's cast into the water and is unable to fulfill its purpose. And if you think of this from the perspective of, of a fisherman, a first century fisherman, nets that aren't mended are a real problem for their livelihood. The consequences could be dire. So here we have this this essential element of a common confession. So it's important that we understand that we are not talking about some kind of superficial unifying around something other than the truth of God's word and what it teaches. An interesting point to note here as well is that in this larger context, the Apostle Paul is really dealing with, as I said, he's dealing with the imbibing of the Corinthians of worldly wisdom. And even more specifically of of impressive, influential, persuasive speech or oratory. You'll see that play out in the further parts of the letter. The Apostle Paul is coming against that and really saying, I didn't do any of that when I brought to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this is, this is what he's kind of going after here in Corinth, this, this worldly wisdom and this, this being impressed with people who speak well and who can influence and move a crowd through impressive oratory. This rise of sophism in this day, the, the sophistry of the day, the, the speaking without reference necessarily to what's actually objectively true, it's just moving and impressive in the way it's presented, and so therefore, I'm going to give it credibility. Welcome to 2021. We are easily moved and impressed by people who can weave a tale together. The Apostle Paul is cutting right through that. And the interesting irony here is that he says in verse 5 that you are in every way enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And yet they had discord because they weren't saying the same things. And it really drives home the point for us that, that eloquence, being able to speak well, is not the same thing as doctrinal clarity. In fact, many, many people, many, many otherwise professing believers are moved in a certain direction away from the clear teachings of Scripture and the straightforward message of the gospel time and time again just through the means of an eloquent teacher. It happens all the time in the church. And the Apostle Paul is saying you must, if you're going to be unified, if you're going to have the same mind, if you're going to say the same things and have the same judgment, it begins with you having a common confession, a common understanding, a common speech, discussion, conversation about the truths of Scripture. This is a A real issue here, it's the truth of God standing in direct contradiction 
to worldly wisdom that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. You see this in verses 18 to 25. He's really building this idea out. But for the sake of time, we, just, we move on. We just need to understand that the Corinthians were operating here with what you might just say discordant confessions. He goes on to kind of describe it in the next few verses where they're saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. They're speaking the same, they're speaking different things. There's discord in their confession. And it's really difficult to know exactly what the content of all of this was, but, but it might be that there was a, an elevation in the minds of Corinthians based upon their favorite teacher or leader or speaker of something that they said or the way in which they said it or some emphasis that, emphasis that they might have put on some particular doctrinal matter, elevating that to being the way that this must be done, the way that this must be taught, or this particular pet doctrine is the only doctrine that we should focus on. What we do know is that it led to them not having a common confession. They're not speaking the same things. There's not a sense of doctrinal unity amongst the Corinthians. And there can be no unity if there's not a commitment to a common confession. John Calvin says it like this, Those who wish to build the church by rejecting the doctrine of the word build a pigsty and not the church of God. Stark terms there for John Calvin. The interesting thing here is that there really were no doctrinal divisions between the people that they referenced. There were no divisions between Apollos and Paul and Cephas. So they had apparently elevated something in their minds to the place that would compel them to divide. Something that was not a point of division, they had elevated it to a point of division. And this happens time and time and time again and leads to churches splitting over issues that they have elevated to the place of doctrine, but it's not. It's not a real doctrinal distinction or division, but they've made it such. And so they divide into their camps, following their leaders. We must, if we're going to walk in unity, we must share a common confession. We must say the same things. We must all agree. Secondly, And quickly, he says that we must be united in the same mind and united in the same judgment. This is really two sides of a similar coin, if you will, that we must have a common conviction and a common custom. Now, I use the term custom a little bit loosely for the sake of of just keeping in in line with the, the locution here, but what we're talking about is that we're united around what we are convinced of. So we confess a belief in something, but it's not just something that we're checking a box off on and saying that we actually believe these things. We are convinced in heart and mind and soul that these things are true in such a way that it moves us to a certain type of action, a certain type of action driven by internal conviction. And then this common custom is what the working out of these things looks like in the life of the church. By the way, I need to point out the the unique feature here when you study the New Testament and you look at this matter of unity in the body of Christ, what you find is the working out of genuine biblical unity in the body of Christ, it's local in its orientation. 
very local. And when you think about what's required for us to maintain a common confession, for us to share common conviction about the things that we say we believe, and then for us to work it out in a common custom or a common practice in applying these principles, it stands to reason that the only means by which we can be accountable to one another in that endeavor and we can sit under leadership that can guide us in the unity that we're called to in this, it has to happen in a local and more intimate setting of the local church, the local fellowship. So we're united by a common confession that we're convinced of, we live in common conviction about the things that we say we believe, and it leads to common practice, common custom, the working out of it. We have a membership process here, our church. We have a, a membership commitment that we ask all of our members to sign. And I just want to kind of read through with you some of the things on this membership commitment so you can understand this is, this is the working out of biblical unity in the life of the body of Christ. You first sign off on the Constitution and Bylaws of the Church, which contains primarily our doctrinal statement, lengthy and scripture-rich statements of our belief. But then you sign off on and agree to your own personal confession of faith and trust in the scriptures, your recognition of sin and the need for repentance and trusting the Lord alone, Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But then you get to the expectations of membership. I'm willing to participate in worship both personally and corporately and to faithfully attend the regular gatherings of the church and elders that the church and elders deem necessary for the health of the body unless hindered by providence. How else can that be worked out except in the life of the local church? There are those in our day and time who are not experiencing unity in the body of Christ simply by virtue of the fact that they've become virtual in their orientation toward church. This is intended to be local and intimate in its orientation. I'm willing to be accountable to other Christians in an ongoing way of learning and fellowship and to deal biblically with others in regard to our relationships rather than gossiping or retaliating in an ungodly way. This has to do with life-on-life fellowship and discipleship some of the things we've already talked about and being accountable to one another and doing this in a way that is supporting and lending credence to our common confession, common conviction, and common custom. I'm willing to submit to the loving rule of the elders. We all submit to the loving rule of the elders. The elders submit to the loving rule of the elders. Submission is the hallmark of the people of God. Mutual submission to one another. So even in the context of elder rule, there is submission that takes place all the time. I'm willing to exercise my spiritual gift or gifts for the building up of the body and the promotion of the gospel. I'm willing to be committed in giving time, money, and resources for the work of the Lord carried out by the church. And I'm willing to be faithful in witnessing for Jesus Christ and fulfilling the Lord's command to make disciples locally and globally. And I'm committed to biblical stewardship as well. This is, this is the working out, the common custom. We, we verbalize these commitments based upon the convictions that we share around a common confession, a common doctrinal belief. And we, we work this out in 
common life in the body of Christ, locally, life on life together in unity. MacArthur said this about unity. He says, being of the same mind and the same judgment rules out grudging or hypocritical unity. Unity must be genuine. We are not simply to speak the same thing while keeping our disagreements and objections to ourselves, making a pretense of unity. Unity is not the same mind and judgment. Unity that is not of the same mind and judgment is not true unity. Hypocrites will add to a congregation's size, but they will take away from its effectiveness. A member who strongly disagrees with his church leadership and policy, not to mention doctrine, cannot be happy or productive in his own Christian life or be at any positive service to the congregation. So what we're talking about is actual working out of biblical unity, life on life in the body of Christ through common confession, common conviction, and common customer practice. Day by day. Well, we're basically out of time, but I just need to say one more thing about all of this to make sure we've covered the waterfront as carefully as we can. There is a point, possibly, in the life of a church when unity requires separation. There is a sentimentalizing of ideas or concepts of unity, of Christian unity, that prevent churches from fulfilling what is obligatory upon them from the scriptures regarding maintaining and preserving unity in the body of Christ through what are some of the more difficult steps that churches must take to protect and preserve unity. For example, in the form of church discipline. In this letter in 1 Corinthians, you have a scenario in chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul has to confront the Corinthians because they're tolerating immorality. They're, they're letting a brother who professes to be a brother maintain fellowship in the body of Christ in open immorality. And he tells them to put this person out. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In order to maintain the unity and purity of the church, we must take action, he would say. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 outlines a very step-by-step process that we follow here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All for the sake of redeeming a brother, but also maintaining unity in the body of Christ in purity. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 19 to 20. 2 Thessalonians 3, Galatians 6. There's these passages that speak to this need of the church to not be so committed to a superficial or emotional or sentimental form of unity that we fail in our duty to maintain and preserve the purity of the church that sustains its unity. And contributes to its unity. The unity of the church, comprised of God's chosen, called, and assembled people from every epoch of redemptive history, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation on the planet, that unity is established and guaranteed by God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as part of that called out assembly, that ecclesia that the Apostle Paul is referring to here with the church of Corinth, as part of that called out assembly, even here locally at Faith Community Church, 
We are compelled by the love of Christ to flesh out that unity in the power of the Spirit according to the sanctifying truth of God's Word. So may God help us walk in unity. May God help us flesh out what is true of us that God has established in Christ Jesus, that we are one in him. And may we work it out in faithfulness. You may be here today and you're not a part of any real fellowship and you really don't know the wonder, the absolute wonder that is fellowship and life in the body of Christ. Because you've never come to Christ. Well, I would appeal to you in the same way that the Apostle Paul appealed to the Corinthians, I would appeal to you. If God is speaking to you today, would you please respond to him? Would you please respond to what you've seen around you in the life of this fellowship, the warmth, the genuine love, the sincere devotion that you see manifest in these people? This is because they are one in Christ Jesus. What you witness in the life of this body is only because of Christ and all because of Christ and the grace that he has manifested in and through his people here. And we would call you to join in repentance and faith and trusting Christ for your salvation so that you can partake in unity and life in the body of Christ. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and we are, we are overwhelmed by the great privilege that is ours to be joined together in true fellowship and genuine unity under Christ as your people. Father, I pray that as you work in and through the lives of each individual believer in this local assembly, would you cultivate in us more and more every day the virtues that lend themselves well to fleshing out genuine unity? Would you use what you are doing in the life of this church the oneness that we share in Christ and the way that we work that out in common confession and common conviction and in common custom and practice, would you use that as a beacon of light and hope and a witness to the love of God in Christ to the watching world around us? Help us, God our Father, to walk in faithfulness and in unity as you have called us to. In Christ's name, amen.